Hey, everybody. Today we've got a special treat for you. This is a live episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, recorded on Friday, October 6th at the Hudson Mercantile in New York. Uh, this was an event associated with New York Comic Con, not a part of the con, one of those adjacent happenings. We had a nice, friendly crowd come out. It was really good to see y'all. And uh, so without any further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Good? Hey. Yeah. Nice cozy crowd. Did everybody grab some uh, some shirts or some buttons or shirts and buttons? Stuff okay. is legit free. Yeah. In fact, we don't want to bring any of it back home, so grab more of it until there's none yeah, of it on you the can way out. Regift it for Christmas yeah. or Halloween. We prefer if you regifted it for I mean, Halloween. Really hog, hog wild with it. Yeah. So this is a stuff to blow your mind podcast. How many of you guys listen to the show? You know what to expect? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Who, who's a newbie here? Who's never heard us before? All right. Okay. Get ready. Oh wow. The pressure is on Buckle to uh, impress you then. Uh, We're pretty weird. Um, we might make you uncomfortable. No. Hope you're, not, hope you're not on board. Who, who's, <laughs> well, well, we'll get into this at the beginning. But yeah, so basically we're recording this. It's going to publish next week. Uh, so we're going to start the show like we normally do, and it's recording over there. And then uh, we'll just proceed as normal. And then hopefully afterwards uh, we'll have a couple minutes to hang out. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's kick it off. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. So if you are not familiar with us, if you're one of those newbies out there who raised your hand, we are the hosts of the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast, which is a science podcast out of the How Stuff Works office in Atlanta. Uh, the core of our show is science, but we take a pretty interdisciplinary approach. So we get into philosophy, religion, mythology, history, pop culture, of course. And that's where we're going tonight. So because we're here at the same time as New York Comic Con, how many of you are actually going to New York Comic Con? Oh, cool. Oh, cool. so a lot. Okay. We were worried there was, like, confusion about whether or not you could come if you weren't a part of New York Comic Con. Yeah? Yeah. Were you confused? I see a lot of confused faces. I was confused. (laughs) All right. Is anybody here in costume? No? Yeah. Oh, Yeah? Okay. Nice. Sort of? Okay. Um, so yeah, so we, uh, we were doing this at the same time as New York Comic Con. So they were like, can you do something pop culture related? And we talked about it for a bit. Um, and we decided, Hey, how about the science of the show Stranger Things? Because do we have fans of Stranger Things out there? <laughs> yeah. Let's do the, Raise your hand if you have not seen Stranger Things. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. We're going to try not to one. spoil okay. we'll try the, to avoid show, the spoilers. But <laughs> yeah. we're going to talk about how science relates to the show. Right. We might drop a couple things. Because that's one of the really cool things about uh, Stranger Things is that, uh, you know, it's, it's a fabulous show that's chock full of nostalgia, but they do a great job of bringing some science and some tantalizing pseudoscience uh, into the show, sometimes just as kind of window dressing, uh, but but it, it adds to just the, uh, the the potency of the show, I, I believe. Yeah, we actually have a quote from a, a physics expert later on. Uh, he spoke to this yeah, and, and basically said those guys did their homework. So 
that w- that made it even more fun for us to cover this for an episode because there's a lot to dig into. Right. So season two is coming up. We're big fans of the show. Uh, so we're going to talk about a few subjects related to plot points in the show. We're, we're going to be talking about parallel universes, government psychic research, and the real-life figure in the history of 20th century science who we think inspired, is it fair to say he's... The, the favorite character of all three of us, Dr. Brenner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, played, definitely. Played by the one and only Matthew Modine. Yes. Hey, do you guys remember when Matthew Modine used to follow us on Twitter? He did yeah. follow us on Twitter for like a week and a half. Yeah. And he wouldn't stop DMing yeah. us for cool. picks. That was like the highlight of our careers. Uh, so <laughs> Matthew Modine followed us, and Robert and I did a high five. And then like maybe a month later, he unfollowed us. And then a month after that, <laughs> Stranger Things came out. And we were like... Hmm, what's going on here? We watched the show and we were like, wait a minute. Matthew Modine is playing John C. Lilly in this. And John C. Lilly is one of our favorites. Like, if you ever listen to the show, we bring him up pretty much every episode. And we have a whole episode all about him. Yeah, yeah, we do. And uh, it, some of you might be wondering, well, who is John C. Lilly? What does he look like? Well, I'm going to explain some of this. But also, you all have tiny pocket computers in your possession. Uh, we will not be offended if you look up John C. Lilly or if you need a refresher on what uh, Dr. Brenner looks like. I will refresh you, though. Uh, Dr. Brenner, of course, played by Matthew Modine, silver hair, as you recall. Uh, glorious. Glorious yeah. silver hair. Uh, you know, slim figure. Do you think that's natural? Pardon? His hair. Do you think it's natural? Oh, yeah. 100%. Naturally silver? Yeah. I think think that's the actual color, yeah. Mm. But uh, uh, Brenner, as he's uh, presented in the show, he's obsessed with, I I think, connecting with other minds. So for part of that show, it's connecting with human minds, and then it becomes more about connecting with these extra-dimensional minds. And he initiates this contact with the other people, with uh, extra-dimensional beings, through uh, an isolation tank, a float tank, and, uh, and, and then uses that float tank to enhance Eleven's psychic powers. Okay, so give me the compare and contrast essay. How does that compare with the real John C. Lilly? Okay, so for starters, John C. Lilly invented the isolation tank. Uh, everybody out there, if you've ever gone and, and floated somewhere, you can thank John C. Lilly for bringing this into the world. In addition, he was a pioneer in the field of electronic brain stimulation. He mapped the pain and pleasure pathways of the brain, and he founded an entire branch of science exploring interspecies communication, uh, mostly between humans and dolphins. He also got into a a good bit of trouble with all of that, uh, but we'll touch on that a little bit later on. Uh, He wants the really dirty details, though. (laughs) You should you should listen to the episode that we did. That's right. We did an episode a a year ago. I'll give you I'll give you a quick hint, and, and then we'll just move on, because we're not going to talk about this here, but it involves sexual relations with dolphins, and it's pretty great. Yeah, not really between Lily himself, but it no, was uh, one of no. his underlings. The humans and dolphins. Yeah. Lily at the time was too busy taking massive quantities of LSD, floating yeah. himself. He didn't have time for that stuff. Yeah, and, and in using this experience to try and connect with the alien intelligence of dolphins. So, we have these two these two figures, right? And uh, again, Brenner on the show is this, uh, you know, very well put together old guy in the old fashioned suit. If you look up pictures of Lily, you will find images of a man and like an older man in brightly colored, like loud shirts and sometimes a coonskin cap. Right. Um, yeah. He dresses up like he's like about to fight the Battle of the Alamo. Yeah, he he is dressed like you would expect a counterculture Timothy Leary esque figure to dress. And so you might say, well, Brenner doesn't look anything like that. 
what possible connection could there be? Well, I was looking at a 2016 interview with Observer.com, and Matthew Modine himself mentioned that the Duffer brothers originally envisioned Brenner as, quote, an unshaven man in jeans and plaid shirts. And then Modine worked with the Duffers to sort of flesh this out and change it. Uh, Modine says that he drew on uh, elements from anime, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Cary Grant, and Lawrence Olivier. And stuff to blow your mind. Well, <laughs> he clearly, clearly followed us on Twitter solely so that we could help him figure out how to dress for this TV show. Uh, well, alleged, allegedly. Uh, Matthew, are you here? No, I, I don't think he showed. Not um, yet. Well, hopefully by the end. He, he'll come in later. Yeah, he'll come in later. He might be late. Okay, the, the crazy part, though, is that this this version of a Lily S. figure that we get on Stranger Things, he may not resemble that counterculture uh, John C. Lilly, but he definitely resembles the establishment John C. Lilly that came before him. So there's like a, a John C. Lilly arc. Yes. Where he, first he's this buttoned-up guy, and then later he becomes this cross between sort of like George Lucas in the 70s, and if you've ever seen the Mystery Science Theater episode... Final Sacrifice. You remember the old prospector, Pipper? Pipper, yeah. Yeah, yeah he did kind of look like Pipper. Uh, but when he was younger, he was just kind of this square-looking but scary, I will say scary, government scientist. Um, l- let me just take a minute to, to roll through uh, some of the, uh, uh, basically the background of John C. Lilly. So John C. Lilly earned his physics degree from Caltech in 1938, his doctorate in medicine from the University of Pennsylvania in 1942, and as a faculty member, he studied biophysics and psychoanalysis at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was primarily interested in the physical structures of the brain and the, the seat of the conscious self. So even when he was, even before he got all um, enlightened, uh, he, was, he was still very interested in connecting with other minds. That was always his thing, whether it's physically or uh, via the use of LSD later on. But despite the unorthodox nature of his research, he did do a fair amount of working for the man, right? Yes, a fair amount. Basically, he wanted to pursue his own agenda, and if the man was going to use him to, you know, to create ways to torment and, and extract information from Cold War, War spies, then he was on board. Until he started cutting up the brains of macaques and dolphins. Yeah, so he did this for about a decade, working for the National Institutes of Mental Health, or NIM. Uh, Did he make those really smart rats? N- well, mostly he worked on macaques, uh, and he had, he did a lot of invasive cortical vivisection. So again, not already he's off to some kind of nefarious work. I think a lot of us would agree. He had a pretty high security clearance. J. Edgar Hoover allegedly knew him by name, and uh, his projects that he was involved with included reprogramming or brainwashing, sleep deprivation, and the operant control of animals via wires implanted in their brain. Whoa. Yeah, so all, some pretty scary stuff. And according to D. Graham Burnett's excellent Orion article, A Mind in Water, Lily's unpublished paper, Special Considerations of Modified Human Agents as Reconnaissance and Intelligence Devices, uh, included this quote. Uh, he wrote of, quote, a covert, covert, he wrote of a covert and relatively safe implantation of electrodes into the human brain for the, quote, push-button control of the totality of motivation and of consciousness. So, but just to be clear here, he didn't put electrodes in the brain of 11-year-old girls with shaved heads? No. Uh, okay. There's no as evidence as that he know. actually you know, did any of this to a human being, but he was he was up for it. If, uh, if I think if he had been given <laughs> the okay, 
Is he like you feel like putting in an implant in somebody's brain this weekend? Yeah, <laughs> he would have been. He would have been game because you really get the impression that he was. He was all in on anything scary the government wanted him to do, so long as it you know, pursued his interest in connecting with other minds. Mm -hmm. This ended up leading him to uh, conducting some uh, experimentation with dolphins in Florida. And it was here where he began to have this empathic connection with dolphins. He began to, like, he performed a vivisection on on a dolphin. And uh, due to some of the quirks of dolphin physiology, you could not actually put the dolphin under for this. So it was like a live conscious vivisection of the dolphin's brain. And this this had a profound impact on uh, Lily. He ended up going down this path um, of promoting the welfare of dolphins, promoting the the higher intelligence of dolphins. So he really he really helped bring about a cultural shift in how we perceive this animal. That it's not just another you know, dumb animal in the water, but it's something that we should we should value, that we should protect even. And we wouldn't have we wouldn't have Flipper if it were not for John C. Lilly. So actually, this is a good point. I, I probably should have brought this up earlier, but there are two movies that you've probably <laughs> seen that are very heavily based on John C. Lilly's life. Uh, the first of which is Altered States, uh, and we'll talk more about that later when we get into the isolation tanks. But has anybody seen the film The Day of the Dolphin with George C. Scott? No one. Really? Oh, oh, some, silence. No? no? <laughs> All right. So this is a... Go find it. Uh, this is a movie where George C. Scott essentially plays John C. Lilly, and he teaches dolphins to talk. And, and his, to love. And to love, yeah. Uh, so, like, they, they call him Fa. He's their father, and they say things like, Fa loves Pa. Uh, it's great. Go watch it. If you want to see George C. Scott just hanging out with dolphins. <laughs> but the other thing that we wouldn't have without him, it, he, he didn't... He didn't influence this movie in terms of that it was about him, but the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's right. Yeah, the uh, the guy who played the creature uh, worked on Flipper and worked with John C. Lilly uh, yeah. while he was down in Florida. So, yeah, we can we can thank him for the creature. And and I would argue that if if anyone ever gets around to actually remaking the creature from the Black Lagoon. They should they should take inspiration from John C. Lilly's story and yeah. from Altered States, and and use that to bring us a proper creature film. Yeah, you get a creature from the Black Lagoon with LSD and isolation tanks and dolphins. Yeah. Throw in some dolphins. I'm fun. on board. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Instead of like Tom Cruise yeah. running around, I don't want to see Tom then, like, Cruise Russell punch the creature from Crow the Black Lagoon. Just doing yeah. like exposition for thirty minutes. Wait, so I have a question about y'all's predictions for Stranger Things. Do okay. you think in upcoming seasons we're going to see Matthew Modine's character follow the same arc as John C. Lilly throughout his life. So will he come in back, he'll come back in future seasons, uh, Hawaiian shirts, beard, long ponytail, <laughs> gained a significant amount of weight, uh, doing, you know, LSD orgies and stuff. Yeah, I hope so. I hope by season four he is is wearing the coonskin hat and, uh, and helping the kids out. So That's I didn't my, think my, about this my, until my now, hope. but I'd watch I mean... He might, you know, his uh, ending was left open. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's from a parallel universe, this other uh, Matthew Modine. Oh, my goodness. We could have multiple uh, yeah. Dr. Brenners in yeah. one uh, All in one versions yeah. of Brenner and Lily together at once. I like it. Floating in a tank, taking LSD. So... I want to shift now to explore a different element of Stranger Things, which is, of course, the government psychic research being conducted at Hawkins Laboratory, uh, Hawkins National Lab, I think, in the show, uh, that they say is being carried out by the Department of Energy. Uh, so I want, to, I want to put you in a scenario. See if you can 
go into this place with your mind. Imagine you are a Defense Department analyst in about spring of 1970. And so you're just going to be washed head to toe in Cold War paranoia. Uh, you've heard these rumors about a secret electronic warfare device aimed at the American embassy in Moscow. And there are also these rumors about weird LSD mind control experiments going on over at CIA. You get the sense that we're in an age of unconventional warfare where these strange new technologies are going to change the balance of power across the globe and you don't want to fall behind. This sounds like right now. <laughs> yeah, except I guess a little less focused on like social media and you know it's Facebook for drones and uh, <laughs> yeah, right. more on like controlling people's minds and killing people with electronics uh, with l- electromagnetic beams. Well, the the thing is, in, in an age before social media, like I mean, social media is kind of this weird sorcery that, that connects all of these minds together. And before you had that, you, the only thing you had was the possibility, however distant, of uh, of psychic communication. Right. I mean, why would we need to do psychic research now when you can just get in somebody's news feed? Yeah. Anyway. I mean, sadly, I mean, the, the, the research is, is probably, showing that yeah, it's, you can probably find out it's more remarkably easy to, to alter someone's mind through, I mean, not in a science fictional way, but in a very, a very scary real way. That went to a scary place. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, let's go back to the Cold War where it's fine. So you're this analyst in 1970. One of your superiors calls you in for a meeting in a secured room. There is a projector screen, and somebody puts up, uh, somebody gets a film going. And a title card announces that the following experiment took place at the Uktomsky Military Institute in Leningrad on March 10th of this year. Then you see a 40-something woman, big bun of dark hair. She's seated at a table. And next to her is a man identified as Gennady Sergeyev, who is a military, uh, a Soviet military physician. And seated, uh, so the, on the table in front of the woman, somebody comes in, and they set down a small jar containing a throbbing black lump. It's a frog's heart, and it's still beating. Now, the film explains that the extracted amphibian heart has been placed in what's known as ringer's solution. It's a solution of salts that can keep muscles pumping even after they've been uh, separated from circulation uh, and from their electrical stimuli in the body. It's kind of like how if, you, if you've ever seen the trick where you salt frogs' legs, they'll start to twitch. Um, and it's known that the ringer solution can keep a frog's heart beating usually for about an hour. The heart is connected by wires to an electrocardiogram, an EKG, and so is the woman seated at the table. And then Dr. Sergeyev tells her to begin. So the woman puts her hands on the table, and she glares at the beating frog heart. And her heart rate increases, and her blood pressure increases, and the film also claims that, quote, heightened biological luminescence radiated from her eyes. Oh. Hmm. See, I, I imagine that, that yeah. she was doing the like psychic powers thing, like holding her temples really hard and squinting. But you know, she so, actually her eyes glowed. That's what they say. I mean, it's hard to tell in black and white, right? Uh, but anyway, after about seven minutes of this, just staring at this throbbing black lump, the frog's heart abruptly ceases and stops beating. Then she does it with a second frog heart. Wait. Then. Yeah, so they bring in they another frog They just have heart. a bunch of frog hearts? Yeah. yeah, somebody's got an ice cream scoop back there, and they're just going to town. So they have a bunch of frogs. <laughs> right. Not hearts. Really they just excited scoop for them their out, big day. throw yeah. them on the table. I think a melon baller would be more appropriate. Yeah. I think you can really get in there with them. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she's, uh, I, I don't know what frogs did to her, but she's, she's killing the hearts. And I guess the frogs probably don't mind at this point. Uh, but next, she turns her attention to 
what's identified as a skeptical doctor in the room, and he doesn't believe any of this, but she concentrates on raising his heart rate telekinetically. And this goes on for about five minutes before Dr. Sergeyev, the attending physician, he steps in, says the experiment's becoming too dangerous, and he calls it to a halt. <laughs> this sounds like scanners. Oh, like yeah. she's yeah, Michael Irons. I'm going to scan yeah. everyone in this room. Yeah. Right now, but, um, <laughs> So, it also sounds like such a, an obvious trick. It's such an obvious yeah. performance. It seems a little over the top, yeah. right? We, we bring in somebody who doesn't believe. We'll show him. Uh, anyway, this woman... He's lucky his head didn't explode. Yeah. This woman really existed. Her name was Ninel Kulagina, also sometimes mistakenly known as Nina Kulagina. Her life was truly remarkable in some ways. Kulagina was born in Leningrad in 1926. She enlisted in the Red Army along with the rest of her family when she was 14, and she served as a tank radio operator on the Eastern Front of World War II and was awarded the Soviet Military Merit Medal. Can you just imagine, it's like when you were 14, were you ready to get in a tank and fight Nazis? It's like, it's Nazis, you know, you're 14, get in the tank, let's go. Yes. That, yeah. that was exactly how my childhood went. No, no, I can't. Did she drive the tank psychically? I don't think so. I think she operated the radio. But okay. she did believe that she'd been psychic since childhood, so who knows if it played into her military career. But she only killed the hearts of German frogs. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, Christian. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, so she, she's had this career. And in the 1960s, after the war's over, Kulagina, she makes a name for herself again when she shows up on Russian state TV, performing these demonstrations of psychokinesis where they'd like have a big glass box that's all sealed off and somebody put a salt shaker or something inside it and she'd stare at it and then move it with her mind, or so they claimed. Uh, now, everything I just described to you, Kulagina, the frog heart tape, that's all real. Uh, it's, at some point, the Defense Department really did have analysts investigate this psychic kill tape. The question is, of course, what's going on in the film? Uh, if you're this hypothetical analyst in 1970, what do you do? Obviously, if, if you're like me, and I think like us generally, you assume, well, this is probably some kind of hoax. I mean, I, I'm not personally very uh, keen on the existence of psychic powers. Either she's some kind of skilled illusionist hoaxing the Russians, or the Russians staged the whole thing as a hoax on us, trying to trick us into wasting money on parallel research. If that was the case, it worked. It worked. So, yeah, if, even if you are skeptical of what's going on, there are going to be people in the room with you who say, well, we can't be sure, and we sure as hell can't allow a psychic assassin gap. <laughs> So, bring on the age of psychic research. Actually, the funny thing is, some amount of paranormal research had already been being funded by the government of the United States since at least going back to the 1950s. There had been interest in it at uh, CIA and, uh, and, and a few places here and there. But it was in the early 1970s that the psychic research really got underway. Well, this, this is when we really got to the point where the government could throw just tons of cash down the well after it, right? Right, yes. Uh, so, yeah, rich country, uh, worried about weapons gaps, worried about falling behind in this technology race I described at the beginning. Everybody's paranoid about the Russians getting an edge. So they're like, well, we might as well train some psychic spies and assassins and see if it works. Do you think we have something like that going on now? But it's like a social media assassination gap. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, don't I, mean, I think get there's it. a gap there too. But the the crazy thing about the psychic research is we know it continued until at least the 1990s and maybe even later. 
That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> like some people in here were alive then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so in Stranger Things, we've got this plot element of the character played by Millie Bobby Brown, of course, Eleven. Uh, she's the product of government psychic research. And uh, if you want to know whether psychic powers are real, I can't answer that for you. If you're interested in my opinion, I'm extremely doubtful. But if you're interested in whether the U.S. government really did psychic research projects like the kind we see in Stranger Things, the answer is pretty much absolutely yes. They did stuff like that, not so much with kidnapped children. They did it with consenting adults who claimed to be psychics, but... All, all the types of experiments we see are mirrored by real, real life research. So, um, I want to talk briefly about a couple kinds of science, uh, psychic research that were done by the government. Research on psychokinesis, which of course was being able to move things with your mind. Mm-hmm. And then research on remote viewing, which is seeing without the eyes. Uh, and I should also mention a couple of books that if you want to go deeper on this subject, uh, were also important sources for me when I was working on this. If you just want a slim and hilarious investigation into a grab bag of government paranormal research, John Ronson's 2004 book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, is excellent and full of really funny stuff. This is the one upon which the movie is based, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, though there's a lot of stuff in the book, I think, that doesn't make it into the movie. Uh, for a more detailed history of U.S. government psychic research programs, you can check out a book just published this year called Phenomena by the journalist Annie Jacobson. This book is great for all the interviews and historical documents she pulls together, uh, though I do want to warn you that she takes kind of a believer's line on it. Like, I think huh. she is far too generous to the possible existence of psychic uh, psychic phenomena and generally has the attitude that ESP is real and these experiments prove it. That's surprising, given her, her pedigree. Yeah, yeah, it sounds but, fun, though. Well, it's a good history well, either way. So. I mean, we all want to live in that world, but, yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, like nobody has has taken James Randi up on his million-dollar prize. Right, right. So. and he, he gets kind of rough treatment in this book. James Randi, if you're not familiar with him, is a uh, stage magician, illusionist, who is a big uh, antagonist of all these people who claim to be real psychics. And he's like, he, for years he did this thing where he had lots of money set aside for anybody who could come demonstrate the reality of psychic powers or ESP or telekinesis, anything like that, under controlled laboratory conditions. And a lot of times what people would say was like, oh, oh, wait a minute, if if there are skeptical scientists who don't believe in my powers present, they won't work. <laughs> so, I, I wish I could use that, that more often in my own life. That is the superpower limitation. Yeah, can you like, imagine saying that in a job interview? Yeah. 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 <laughs> or, or what if uh, like 50% of all X-Men can only use their powers in, in, the, in a positive in environment? Yeah, yeah. right. So, yeah, man, school would be rough. Yeah. And they all live in a school. Uh, so a lot of the government-funded psychic research of the kind like we see in Stranger Things, it took place at a think tank in Northern California called the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, especially starting in 1972. And in 1972, SRI was the second largest research institute working for the Defense Department. Number one, of course, was the RAND Corporation. Uh, I found out not actually named after Ayn Rand. Kind of a disappointment. It's named after Danny Rand from Iron Fist, because everybody liked that. Netflix show so Wait, much. Didn't you say he actually has? He a has a corporation, Grand Corporation. corporation huh. Yeah, this is. We were talking about this earlier. Does anybody know if the guy who created Iron Fist was just like a huge fan of Atlas Shrugged? Nobody knows. We couldn't figure it out. We thought we maybe we'd ask around, but okay. Anyways, clearly can't this believe isn't the he same showed up without checking that out for us. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, so yeah, so the, the the SRI was doing all this research, and it had been it had been founded right after World War II, so it had been around for a while before it got deep into the psychic research. But this was a serious government think tank that did real research. They got uh, budgets reaching up to like seventy million dollars a year. That's in like nineteen seventies dollars. So some real money is going into this kind of stuff. And a major figure in this history, especially at SRI, is a guy named Harold Hal Putoff. Now, Hal Putoff was an SRI researcher who had worked on laser physics, and he'd done these uh, NSA supercomputer projects in the past. And in the early 1970s, Putoff got really interested in research about psychic powers in plants. (laughs) So uh, there was this guy named Grover Cleveland Cleve Baxter. Wait. (laughs) Repeat that? Grover Cleveland Cleve Baxter, like call so, me Cleve. What, oh, I see. So did he rename himself, or did his parents just like? I hate think him? that was just his name. Huh. <laughs> what, what I love about this name is that it sounds like one of the uh, the fake NFL player or is it college football player names from the Key and Peele sketch? You know, <laughs> yeah. where yeah. they all have ridiculous names. Yeah, Cleve, Grover Cleveland, Cleve Baxter. The, I'm going to just start adding Cleve Baxter after my name. <laughs> well, it makes me think of Clive Barker, right? Oh, uh, so it's like Clive Barker, Clive Barker? Yeah, so this guy was... Baxter, Cleve? Essentially, he wanted to make psychic plant Cenobites. Huh. Oh, really? Not quite. Okay, so let me get there. Ba- Baxter <laughs> was a former CIA employee who used to administer polygraph tests for the agency. He not a, probably not a cool guy. He was the kind of guy who'd like hook up new agents to a polygraph and ask them questions like, "Have you ever smoked the marijuana? Are you a homosexual?" and stuff like that in the 1950s. Um, and so one night, after hooking his lie detector machine up to a house plant, he became convinced that plants could read our minds. Do, do you think he was just? Bored and just sort of going around the house and hooking up various things like the the the, the nightstand and I, you know, I a punch bowl <laughs> and then oh the, let's try the fern see what happens. It's, it's impossible to know for sure, but I think it's the opposite. I think he was more like manic and trying to find any kind of thing to do, and he just saw the lie detector machine, saw the house plant, put two and two together, and huh. made uh, and set a plant on fire to see if it would you know. <laughs> Uh, communicate with him psychically. But wait, anyway, he, he did what? worse than set it on fire, right? Wait, what? What? No, t- no, no. no. I'm, tell I'm, him what I'm, comes I'm, next. Okay, so, so, so this other guy from SRI, Hal Putoff. So he got interested in this guy Cleve, call me Cleve Baxter's research, and Putoff proposed an experiment where he would grow an algae culture and then split it in half and then separate the two cultures by five miles, and then torture one of the algae cultures with lasers to see if the other one would respond. This is the thing that, that blows my mind. Yeah. That, that he had lasers to do it with. Like, he didn't just set it on fire or, I don't know, punch the algae? Like right. he, he was a laser researcher. He'd done lasers up and down. Oh, yeah? so he just had lasers laying around, well, along with his lie detecting machine. The lasers make it more sciencey, I guess. You okay, know? Yeah. I see. Because, right. because he can otherwise... beef up like his methodology section in the paper. <laughs> yeah, it, ends a, it lends a layer, uh, layer, lends an air of credibility if you're doing defense research, right? Well, you know, and, and if the lasers were not involved, it is a, it is a lot like, uh, for instance, the power, uh, the powder of sympathy, which we covered on the podcast. Before. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The supposed idea that uh, that you could you could put a magic powder 
on a blade that had wounded a dog, and it would make the dog yelp halfway around the world, and you could use this to uh, navigate your sailing vessel. This is a good thing to point out, because a lot of this research that was actually done in these labs throughout the 20th century sounds a lot like magical potions and Mm -hmm. occult beliefs from, like, the 18th and 19th century, except they've just sort of, like, put some sciencey sounding words in there, but the principles are the same. Yeah. Uh, And so, uh, here's your sciencey sounding words. Putoff was interested in whether a hypothetical particle in physics called a tachyon could explain psychic communication between plants and humans. Tachyon is a hypothetical particle. Nobody's ever seen it before, but if it existed, what it would be is a particle that always moves faster than light. So no particle with mass in our universe can move up, can accelerate up to the speed of light. A tachyon would be something that could never decelerate down to the speed of light. Uh, and so he thought, yeah, maybe that's involved in psychic phenomena. Anyway. Uh, uh, now, this is where John Carpenter got the idea, I assume, to have tachyons uh, communicate with people's dreams oh, in the past, yeah, right? In uh, Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness. Yeah. What a great movie. The best movie ever to feature a jar of Satan. <laughs> Okay, so uh, back to put off, put off. Got in touch with Baxter, and through being in touch with Baxter, uh, he got to know this guy who is an artist and a writer and a self-proclaimed psychic named Ingo Swan. And this wait, meeting, wait, where are these names coming from? These are real names, man. <laughs> this guy sounds like like a villain in a Ghostbusters movie. It does, Ingo uh, Swan. Yeah. Like he made the tower that'll bring forth the giant's lore. Yeah, yeah. Or he has like a, a book all about, like the, the book of Ingo Swan. Yeah. Well, this guy apparently did, he would like dress himself in old like religious clothes he found at secondhand stores and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, but I, I don't know, I kind of admire that part of him. It's like, yeah, you just do you, man. Well, and it sounds like you want to wear a priest outfit, go for it. He sounds like he was a showman too. And, yeah. And that's what we keep seeing time and time again with these examples is you have, you have scientists and some showmen. And uh, and the scientists don't realize that what they have is a showman. Right, exactly. So uh, put off and uh, put off and uh, excuse me, Swan, Ingo Swan. They have this meeting, and this meeting kicks off this wave of paranormal research at the SRI that would continue throughout the 1970s. So Ingo Swan, he was this self-proclaimed psychic. He said he had ESP. He said he could do psychokinesis. And uh, Putoff and colleagues claimed that Ingo Swan demonstrated all kinds of powers under test conditions that could not have been faked. For example, they claimed that he was able to demonstrate unexplainable psychokinesis, such as when he used his mind to perturb a magnetometer inside a quark detector buried under the basement of a research facility on Stanford University campus. And this led... put I mean... If, That's incredible. If he could actually do that, yeah. if the story is true, wow, that's I mean, an that's amazing way better thing to than do. crushing a Coke can with your mind. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. So in the show, we see these, these experiments where they're trying to get her to maybe kill a rabbit in a cage or crush a Coke can, which she successfully does with the Coke can. But yeah, this is something that you couldn't fake. It would be dealing with this thing deep underground. And the people at this experiment claimed that he did it. Now, as as I've implied before, I'm doubtful about the truth of these claims, but that's what they said. They said, wow, he moved this thing and there's no way he could have faked it. So this led put off in a colleague named Russell Targ 
and a list of other sort of revolving collaborators to work for years with defense and intelligence grants to study psychic phenomena through the SRI. And then later there were all these derivative programs in, in the following decades. Like, for example, there was a remote viewing program run out of the Army out of Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, now, a lot of this research would end up focusing on the ESP phenomenon known as remote viewing that we mentioned earlier. That's seeing stuff you wouldn't be able to see with your own eyes. And we see examples of this in Stranger Things. Exactly. Like, that's yeah, exactly what they're trying to get Eleven to do. Yeah, like go to Russia and look at this guy and tell us what he's saying. Those were the kinds of experiments people wanted to do. In, in general, the most common form uh, through, throughout the end of, or after the first year or so of this, was what uh, came to be known as coordinate remote viewing experiments. So that would work like this. Psychic is given a set of map coordinates, then the psychic would say what they saw there at the map, at the, at the place on the map. You can see maybe a few ways that this could be a little bit flawed as an experimental design, right? Like if somebody went to go get a map and look and see what was there and then do some reading about it. Uh, but there are some cases where the researchers, again, insisted, like, no, 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 there's no way they could have done that. Uh, it, it's absolutely real. But I want to give one example. So there was a remote viewer named Pat Price who was kind of normal name here, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, refreshingly normal. He was famous for these amazingly detailed remote viewing results. Now, Price was born a Mormon, but he became a Scientologist in the 1960s, and he claimed that it was in the Church of Scientology that his powers were brought forth. I guess he was having a session with the E-meter and all that, and he gained the power to see things at long distances. So he was he claimed by a radioactive E-meter. <laughs> Uh, how he got recruited is a pretty good story. But often Swan met him in the parking lot of a farm where they were buying the office Christmas tree. Uh, Price sold them a Christmas tree, and then they recruited him for CIA remote viewing experiments. Uh, in one case, he supposedly was able to use remote viewing to give intricate, de detailed descriptions of the inside of a restricted NSA base called Sugar Grove in West Virginia. Uh, Price was also known for the remote viewing of details of the Soviet facility in Kazakhstan known as URDF-3 for Unidentified Research and Development Facility 3. And uh, Price, he drew illustrations of this gantry, gantry crane that were determined to be very similar to something that was actually photographed at the facility, and internal analysis concluded that he couldn't have done this, and, and I, I'm going to caveat this in a second, but they say he couldn't have done this unless either he actually saw it through remote viewing or he was informed of what to draw by someone knowledgeable of URDF3. Now, I think maybe there could have been other possibilities, but even if you only accept those two possibilities, you've got to wonder about the second one, and many people in these research circles did start to wonder, like, could his source of information be the disinformation arm of the KGB? Could some of these psychics giving us this information be feeding us disinformation, running psyops basically on our own programs? But they didn't they didn't consider like maybe that he was doing like a cold reading? Oh, I mean, that, that's a whole other question. Cold reading, of course, is the technique of, you know, looking for cues in the person you're talking to. It's a mentalism trick. And also playing, you're also playing off their expectations of your knowledge, too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so that's a way of using people's reactions to the things you're saying to give the impression that you're getting information that, that you couldn't possibly have, and really what you're doing is getting sort of hits and miss verification through their body language and their eyes and, and little things they mention that they don't realize they've, they've given up. 
so yeah, the, there are a lot of questions about what went on there. But I, I want to mention a couple other examples of government psychics uh, who were doing this kind of stuff along the lines that we see Eleven doing in the show. You ever seen the performer Uri Geller? Who here is familiar with Uri Geller? Yeah? Uh, I think, didn't he, he's still like a guy that would appear on Carson back yes, in the day, Yeah, right? he's the Israeli guy who bends spoons. Who, so he claims to be a psychic, and he his biggest act in his career was he would get a spoon and he'd use psychokinesis, so he claimed, to bend it. I don't know what spoons ever did to him, why he hates spoons so much. He's been, you know, thousands of spoons in his career. And people seem to think this is really impressive. Uh, I think a lot of people who are only a little bit familiar with him don't realize that he he claims his powers are 100% real. You know, he he's like, yeah, I'm a real psychic. I'm not an illusionist. This is not an act. Huh, okay. Uh, but so Uri Geller was tested extensively by the SRI in the 1970s with these experiments like, what's in the box? Where they'd have a box and they'd roll a die it's in the Gwyneth box. With Paltrow's head. Yeah, but here's the question. So Gwyneth Paltrow's head is in there. Which side of it is facing up? <laughs> is it her left ear? Is it the bloody stump of the neck? Yeah. And that's what he would have to guess. Let me consult which, my psychic powers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which side of the die is facing up? Another one would be like, can you look inside sealed aluminum film canisters and say what's there? Is it ball bearings? Is it magnets? And, uh, and of course, again, we have these stories by the people conducting the experiments like Putoff and Targ that he was able to get these results that are just impossible for him to have gotten by chance, impossible for him to have cheated. It's just too amazing. Um, again, we, you know, uh, all, all the all the asterisks about skepticism there. And this is consistent throughout a lot of the literature. Many of the people who worked on these research, research projects have remained adamant over the years that they were able to prove psychic powers were real on the government's dime. And even some internal reviews on the value of these programs seemed kind of optimistic. Like, to quote from one report for the CIA put together in 1975 by the physicist J.A. Ball, who independently reviewed all the data, quote, a large body of reliable experimental evidence points to the inescapable conclusion that extrasensory perception does exist as a real phenomenon, albeit characterized by rarity and lack of reliability. Which is kind of, that last part kind of undercuts everything, doesn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, if it's, if we were to take that on face value, and I mean, on one hand, yes, it's amazing if psychic uh, phenomena were real, but then if it were not dependable at all, like it'd be utterly useless for the, the government. You can't send in a psychic assassin and it's like, oh, well, there's like a 10% chance he'll be able to blow somebody's head up with his mind, uh, and then 90% chance that he's just uh, arrested and you know executed on the spot. Or even worse, I mean, how about you're doing the remote viewing, right? You're the mm-hmm. person who's giving somebody the inside details of some Soviet research facility, and uh, what you're trying to sell is, well, my my results are amazingly accurate about one out of a hundred times. Yeah, and then and then it's not necessarily a situation where they would be. Uh, it's like, oh, well, no, I don't see anything. Sorry, it's you. You're, they would be giving you false information, perhaps just made up information. Uh, it, it would be just completely unreliable for any government purposes. Yeah. So another problem with all this research, I think, is that based on my reading, it seems that. While we keep getting all these people involved in this research who say, yeah, the phenomena is real, psychics are real, we've shown it over and over again in these tests, this research and all of its administrative levels just seems crammed with people who in uh, the parapsychologist Gertrude Schmeidler's uh, terminology are sheep, meaning people who are committed in advance to the belief that psychic phenomena are real as opposed to her term goats for people who believe in advance that it is not real. 
you know, as, as I've said before, I think I, I'm kind of a goat. But if you have a whole lot of people who believe very strongly in a thing, working on experiments to prove that thing, you're probably not going to get a lot of ob- objectivity in your methodology. Yeah. And so this is a criticism that's been leveled against this research for a long time. I want to give a couple examples real quick. Um, of of the, the kind of sheep thing going on. So a major figure in the remote viewing research conducted out of Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, was uh, was like they would give people these coordinates or these places to view, and it might be a place of strategic importance, right? So here's a Soviet base. Or there's even one story that these psychic spies out of Fort Meade were supposed to see what was happening inside Tehran during the Iranian hostage crisis. Now yeah. you can you can easily imagine though the situation there is uh, you know we're trying to figure out how to how to handle the situation and then someone says well do you want our psychics to take a crack at it and yeah why like, not well Jimmy we have Carter psychics like, sure yeah we're, yeah we're paying for them we might as well see what they got maybe yeah. they got nothing but it, try it out I don't know if I believe it's true I think I heard that Jimmy Carter was aware that this had taken place yeah but yeah uh, yeah anyway so. At Fort Meade, one of the major figures involved in the remote viewing projects there was this guy named Ed Dames. Have you ever heard of him before? He shows up sometimes on, uh, what's that show, Art Bell, Coast to Coast, where they talk about UFOs and stuff. Uh, so he was a guy who, who worked on this project for the Defense Department, and he was intensely interested not just in the strategic targets, but in having his remote viewing agents spy on stuff like the alien bases of the Galactic Federation scattered throughout the solar system, which are the forward advance posts of these aliens that are going to colonize our, our solar system. Okay, sounds reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when you when you build a team of government psychics, right? I mean, right. you end up spying on the Galactic Empire. Yeah, and so uh, there were some people, you know, in various ranks who were a little bit doubtful about whether that was a useful research project. Uh, in, uh, in the, the, sorry, in John Ronson's The Men Who Stare at Goats, Ronson claims that one of Dame's personal remote viewing projects was using ESP to determine the true nature of the Loch Ness Monster, Ooh, which he eventually it? determined was the ghost of a dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds I like good. that. Yeah. 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 That's better than any of the other ones I've heard. Which is sadder, that it's the ghost of a dinosaur or that it's the last living dinosaur and it's all alone? I think the last living dinosaur would have been, would be far sadder. Yeah, because yeah, it would yeah. be just so, like, if it's a ghost, inbred can, and like, hang out with its other dead ancestors. Yeah. At least a ghost, you can imagine, has delight in haunting people. I, yeah. Has there ever been a ghost dinosaur movie? Ooh, there's been a, there's a ghost shark movie. Okay. So, all right. Maybe. We need to get on that, copyright that. Okay, one final anecdote also from Ronson's The Men Who Stare at Goats. And this is, I think, exemplary of the kind of thing that may have been going on to give people who were working on these psychic experiments the impression that they were turning up real phenomenon. Uh, Ronson interviews this guy who worked at the Fort Meade Project named Lynn Buchanan. And uh, he also interviews another remote viewer named Joseph McMonagall. And Buchanan tells Ronson the story about McMonagall's amazing psychic powers. One time, there was a locked door at the facility at Fort Meade, and McMonagall used his psychic powers to remote view what the key to the door looked like, and then he made a sketch of the key from that psychic vision, and then took it to a locksmith, and had the locksmith make a copy of the key from the drawing, and the key worked, and he was able to open the door. If true, that would be amazing, right? 
But in uh, his interview with Ronson, McMonagall admits that what had actually done, uh, what had actually happened there was that he had picked the lock. And he didn't want to deflate morale among the other psychic spies, so he didn't tell them that. Uh, he just let them believe that it had been this psychic adventure. I mean, it's because classic. they have to be in a positive environment. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a classic magician's trick here, right? I mean, it's, it's, you can't see what I'm doing with this hand because all the stuff this one's doing. This one's busy running to the locksmith. Uh, this, this one's picking yeah. a lock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in, in final explanation, I mean, there are a lot of things that could have been go- going on in these experiments that people claimed were giving these amazingly accurate results and proving the truth of psychic powers. In some cases, you have to assume there may have been fraud or trickery. It may have been disinformation at some level. It may have been internal psyops campaigns. There may have been hoaxers. I mean, l- plenty of skeptics allege that the psychics like Uri Geller were just doing si- sleight-of-hand tricks and tricks the scientists. Mm-hmm. But also, I think among the researchers themselves, there is probably a strong tendency towards what's known as cherry-picking, um, meaning that maybe sometimes the remote viewers did have some truly amazingly accurate descriptions of stuff they wouldn't be able to see, but what if these amazingly accurate hits were like four or five sessions out of thousands... So you think that's what Matthew Modine's up to in Stranger Things? He's just like like he oh, right. every for a thousand days he makes eleven try to crush a. Yeah, well, can. they just cut a lot of the scenes out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's one that's way, the director's cut. That's one way remote viewing is different than psychokinesis. So if you make somebody try to crush a coke can with their mind without touching it a thousand times, and they can only do it once, I'm still impressed. Like if you can rule out some kind of intervention, like that's the kind of thing that would would that would would have won the uh, the, the the James Randi prize. Exactly. If you could, yeah. if you could without any. Without touching it, just crush that can with your brain. Right. With proper controls in place mm-hmm. and you can do that, there, boom. You've got the prize. Psychic phenomena are real. I'm still impressed even though you could only do it once. <laughs> with remote viewing, you know, you could say, I've got a picture here that you can't see. Describe it for me. If you do this hundreds of times and a few times you come up with a pretty accurate description, I'm not impressed. That's just, I mean, you could do that randomly. You're just monkeys on a typewriter. Hmm. Yeah, they're bound to pound it out eventually. Anyway, so one difference between this type of government psychic research and the stuff we see in Stranger Things is that I never came across any examples. There may have been some out there because there's still some classified stuff, but I never came across any examples of psychics using an isolation tank to Ah. enhance their powers, which is one of my favorite set pieces on the show. That might be why they didn't have a positive environment all the time. You need an isolation tank to feel good about yourself. Well, I'm, it's interesting that you say that because, um, well, let's just start with isolation tanks. Who here has has floated? Who Raise your hand if you have floated, if you've been in an isolation tank. This all guy right. should host the show. He, he's like <laughs> on top of it. All right, so, so keep your hands up. Uh, if, all right, keep, now keep your hand in the air if you've been in one more than once. All right? Okay. Did you hallucinate? Okay. Yeah, no hallucinations. So Robert has floated in an but only isolation once. tank, and, and yeah. I have floated, but only once. Joe? I I would love to try it. I tried it once at home in the washing machine, and it just didn't. <laughs> Joe. No good. Well, we, we all float down here, Joe. <laughs> I'll float with you someday. Well, I, I think that the show does a pretty great job of yeah. explaining how it works. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's salt. It's buoyancy. You're, you're floating in the, in the water. Um, it's a... Uh, if, if you've done it before, you know that the first time you float, a lot of it is about just getting used to the fact that you're in this body temperature, 
uh, you know, high salt mixture, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's like stinging every sensitive part of your body, like cuts and scrapes you didn't realize you had, or yeah. crying out to you. Oh God! I mean, that seems like with all the other deprivation, that would have the possibility of reducing your entire consciousness to a hangnail. Yeah, yeah, because it does p- play with your consciousness. I mean, that's why people climb into them, and that's why John C. Lilly was. I mean, that's why he invented it. That's why they were researching this at NIM. Now we should we should clarify though the isolation tanks that you see in altered states or in stranger things are usually different than what you would just go to at like a commercial place so the the ones that we floated in at mm-hmm. least were horizontal and you're kind of laying on your back so you can smell yeah and yeah sort of see yeah you definitely smell because that was like that distracted <laughs> me from most of my first float was my only float was that uh uh, was it? Wow! It really smells salty in here, Dude, and I don't get, know why I was we surprised. We gotta go do a double float. That's the th- well. That's yeah. the thing. They always say you need to float more than once yeah. because that first float is just about getting used to. All we'll the, bring the Joe weirdness. and make. We'll record it. Yeah, we should. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, now the tanks that Lily was using at, at NIM, they they were kind of. Uh, kind of, like, they were very. They had a nightmare quality to them. Yeah. I guess you'd say the, the individuals were dressed in something that kind of looked like a gimp costume with these like big blackout goggles. Uh, and it was like a luchador mask, right? yeah, kind of like a really scary luchador mask. <laughs> And, uh, and they were, they, they found that it had a pretty severe effect on the subjects because you're essentially locking someone away with the inward facing mind. And it doesn't take much of that to, um, to start playing with your, your sensations and playing with your thought process. I mean, it's the, it's the reason that solitary confinement right. is such a hellacious thing to inflict on somebody. Yeah, I mean, I think that's widely considered a form of torture now. Yeah. And this is basically what they wanted, though. Yeah, yeah, because they were researching, quote, psychological stability of human beings under sustained isolation and reduced sensory input. Little, little did they know, like, 40 years later, people would pay money to do this. Well, <laughs> I mean, this this is an area that parallels that uh, that duality with yeah. Lily of uh, establishment Lily, counterculture Lily. Establishment Lily was all about, let's get this thing, and we're going to take potential spies. We'll lock them away in there, and when they lose their mind, they'll tell us everything. And then uh, counterculture Lily was like, no, this is uh, you awesome. need to lose your mind in here on LSD, yeah. uh, maybe. I can and, talk uh, to dolphins. And, yeah, and then potentially talk to alien dolphins. Yeah. Man, that Lily mentality of like the self-experimentation is something I, I have this big conflict about. Because on one hand, it's like... I like admire it, you know, I'm like somebody wants to experiment on themselves, I'm like that's confidence, that's courage. At the same time, that's usually not good science, right? Because it's hard to be objective when you're experimenting on yourself. It tends to suggest an impatience that is generally not compatible with scientific rigor. Right, or trying to get around ethical boundaries that would exist if you were experimenting on others. Yeah. Which, okay, so we can say Matthew Modine, as far as we know so far, and I'm, I refuse to refer to him by whatever his character's name is. Matthew Modine. Dr. Brenner. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> Matthew Modine is a patient doctor because he hasn't experimented on himself yet in the show. It's true. They're, yeah. they're probably saving that for But that's coming two. up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Lily really got into it. He, he, when he floated himself in this nightmarish contraption, uh, he saw a limitless possibility here, uh, and a, a, a way to just like 
to get in, in touch with uh, like the, the the unaffected mind, like the, the mind without any of the, uh, the the weights of sensation. And uh, and he he ended up writing about it pretty much for the rest of his life. Uh, his his writings are really interesting if you ever give them a try because they it kind of waffles back and forth between being. Uh, like academic writing yeah. and being like stream of consciousness writing, uh, but in a in an appealing because he, way. He wrote while he was high in an isolation well, tank. Uh, maybe and, he had and also paper. It's, it's really hard to, to yeah. write. In there. But, uh, I have a quick quote from him though. This is from uh, Lily. Tanks for the memories. Flotation tank talks from 1995. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Tanks for the memories. Yeah, <laughs> this guy's great. He, had a, he wore that coonskin cap. Remember? Yeah. And his That's favorite, what uh, were one of his favorite names for the uh, the tank itself was the womb to tomb wet box. <laughs> so, um, wow. We should, like, we should all start incorporating that into name. our uh, our daily conversations. D- dad jokes from the thirteenth plane. Yeah. Uh, but here's the quote. He said, At the highest level of Satori from which people return, the point of consciousness becomes a surface or a solid which extends throughout the whole known universe. This used to be called fusion with the universal mind or God. In more modern terms, uh, you have done a mathematical transformation in which your center of consciousness has ceased to be a traveling point and has become a surface or solid of consciousness. It was in this state that I experienced myself as melded and intertwined with hundreds of billions of other beings in a thin sheet of consciousness that was distributed around the galaxy, a membrane. So what's fascinating about this to me, where you give like a, a quick like a uh, foreshadowing, uh, is because my section's all about parallel universes, and he's essentially ah, using the language of parallel universes of the multiverse to mm-hmm. describe this. Yeah, so... Um, that quote kind of sums up just how high-minded and essentially mystical and magical uh, Lily got with the isolation tank. Um, and we don't, we're not going to really go into the dolphin research, but uh, that becomes a whole area where he definitely uh, kind of becomes a scientific pariah, certainly within dolphin research for the rest of his career. So I'm curious, what does rigorous research say about the real-life effects of of using these uh, isolation tanks. Well, we do have a, a fair amount of research uh, to, to go on here, and a lot of just uh, personal anecdotes from people who have floated a lot. Uh, floaters often report hallucinations, out-of-body sensations, uh, increased introspection, because ultimately you're, you're locked in there, and you, well, you're not locked in there, but I mean, you, you, you feel you're slightly... You're not doing it right if you're not locked in there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do... You feel as if the limits of your body are kind of harder to define yeah. because of the the body temperature water you're floating in. Uh, floaters, like sleepers, tend to experience decreased alpha waves and increased theta waves hmm. in the brain. So this is the stuff of dreams. Except you're still awake. Yes. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't fall asleep in there. Uh, also, sensory deprivation, even of a single sort, so just uh, sight or sound, uh, etc., can produce hallucination, uh, a voice or rumble heard in total silence, the light seen in total darkness, that sort of thing. Yeah, we've talked about this before with like a, the creepiness people report when they go in an anechoic chamber. This is like a, a room with acoustic properties so that sound is really muffled, you know, nothing echoes, everything's very, very quiet. People feel like they're going crazy in there. They, like, they start to imagine they're hearing their own brain work and stuff. It, it, it troubles you. Yeah, and in fact, a 2009 study published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease found that a mere 15 minutes of near-total sensory deprivation uh, was enough to trigger vivid hallucinations in many test subjects. 
Now, were those people who already uh, had some kind of condition that would make them prone to hallucinations, but they were just normal people? I think these were just normal, well, you know, run-of-the-mill, average, uh, averagely, uh, you know, brought into the study people. Yeah. Wow. But they were all psychic. <laughs> no. Not before the, uh, the experiment. Oh, only yeah. after. Uh, another 2009 paper, this one from uh, Psychopharmacology, uh, explored the possibility that sensory deprivation induces psychotic symptoms non-pharmacologically. And the idea here is that sensory depth disturbs error-dependent updating of one's worldview and leads to problems with top-down perceptive constraints resulting in hallucination. Hmm. However, I do want to point out that this particular study... They used a sensory deprivation tank with a panic button. So they told people, all right, you're going to get into this, and you might start feeling – it might just get too much for you. You're going to feel kind of freaky, but you can panic and and hit that panic button. Uh, Whereas other studies have just had the the scientists say, hey, when you've had enough, just tap on the the lid and we'll let you out. So so this is like if you went to yoga and they – said, here's a panic button, just in case. Like, you're probably not going to have that great a class. Yeah, it's like if you were going to yoga and you, your, your mom was talking to you beforehand and said, now, hold on, I've heard that some people really hurt their neck doing that, or, you know, or, oh, I know a friend who hurt their wrist doing yoga. Yeah, you're going to go and you're going to be terrified that you're going to uh, uh, paralyze yourself on the mat. Yeah, like you're trying to figure out if your kid's going to have nightmares for some reason. They're going to bed, and you say, now, don't think about machete mimes. Don't, yeah. just don't. Think about machete mimes, and it'll be fine. I mean, this is why priming is so important uh, to uh, you know ancient traditions uh, involving the use of psychedelic substances. Mm-hmm. It's important for uh, modern practitioners who take a you know a, a serious uh, uh, approach to the use of uh, psychedelic substances, uh, and and even even like meditative, even yoga. It's it's about priming the individual for what's going to occur. And speaking of which. Uh, there's a 1987 study that I came across on prayer and mystic experience, and they found that when placed in an isolation tank, people with differing religious orientations related differing specific religious imagery, which is no surprise, but not in non-religious imagery and other phenomenal experiences. So there's like more similarity among stuff not related to your particular beliefs. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is interesting, too, in light of those sort of negative, positive uh, experiences and priming that we're talking about here. Uh, and even the aims of uh, John C. Lilly or a fictional Dr. Brenner, even. Uh, I also think it's fascinating to think of isolation, isolation chambers uh, used as laboratory stand-ins for prayer. Because yeah. what is prayer but an attempt to communicate with an extra-dimensional entity? And uh, and that's exactly what uh, Dr. Brenner is trying to do with Eleven on on the show Stranger Things. Oh, well, yeah, it, it makes you think about how a lot of religious rituals are actually, you know, all throughout history are used to bring about some form of an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. I mean, you could think about uh, even an act as simple as the repetitive uh, activity of prayers, like the repetitive uh, words you say in a prayer. If you've never tried this, just say the same sentence or the same word 500 times times in a row, you will probably achieve some kind of mildly altered state of consciousness, mainly because it starts to disrupt the part of your brain that automatically processes linguistic content. If you've ever like tried to not hear what a word means when somebody's saying words, you, 
you can't do this on purpose. You can't help but hear what the words mean. But if you say the same word to yourself hundreds of times, you start to lose the connection between the sounds of the mouth and the meanings. And the beautiful thing about this is you do not need LSD or uh, a swimming pool full of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Just repetition. Yeah. The way of the world. All right. Well, here's a question for you, Christian. Okay. Say you get into your flotation tank or your children's swimming pool full of salt water. Okay. And you reach out to an extra-dimensional entity. Oh. Where okay. is that entity? Like, scientifically, where is the, the you are here arrow for that being? Right. So well, what we have to clarify here is the difference between... You're talking about alternate dimensions or extra dimensions versus parallel universes. Ah. And Stranger Things is, seems to be unclear on what's going on there, right? Well, basically, I guess what's going on with Stranger Things, obviously, is that this is, this is a, a fairy realm. This is a, this is a, a typical trope of, yeah. uh, of various uh, you know, dimensional travel, uh, science fiction or fantasy. Uh, the upside down is is uh, is, is like the, the realm of shadow. Is, what, is they they draw that comparison in the what show. What is it in Zelda? It's like the dark world or something. I don't Never. know, man. Yeah, I mean, it's a version of this world, but uh-huh. with slight. You know, it's dark and it's toxic and it's slightly altered. Well, okay, so there's science fiction fans probably all in this room that are familiar with the idea of parallel universes or alternate dimensions. They've been in our fiction, our pop culture, yeah. and comic books and TV and movies for decades now, right? What, what's your favorite fictional parallel universe? Oh, mine's uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths from TC Comics. I mm. like, because there's an, an infinite amount of them. I have to go with the, uh, the realm of uh, the Goblin King and Labyrinth. Oh, that's, that's so one. good. I have to go with the Super Mario Brothers movie where they go <laughs> to the other parallel dimension where Dennis Hopper is King Koopa. So, but with all of those, it actually turns out that there is some basis in scientific theory for a multiverse. And I'm going to present you with three possibilities here and we can try to crack the nut of what's going on here in, in uh, Stranger Things. So, so right after Stranger Things came out, Popular Science interviewed this theoretical physicist named Brian Green. Oh, yeah, yeah he's, he's from New York City. Yeah. yeah, and they asked him about Stranger Things, and the first distinction he made is, is what I was just talking about. He's like, whoa, 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 there's a difference between alternate dimensions and parallel universes. Don't, don't just use those interchangeably. We kind of do in pop fiction, but but he wanted to clarify the difference. So here's the difference. An alternate dimension implies you've got one universe, right? And that universe has more dimensions to it than what we can perceive. So beyond the three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time. So, yeah, it's like if you imagine that we are squares or triangles and suddenly we encounter a cube or a sphere or something, we just, like, wouldn't be able to perceive this extra dimension of it. Exactly. Yeah, you wouldn't even be able to see it or hear any of your senses, right? Whereas a parallel universe implies the whole multiversal proposal. This is that... There are multiple universes, but each one of these universes has three dimensions of space and one dimension of time to them. So why should we trust this green guy? <laughs> well, he's, he's kind of a big deal in science. But remember the scene in Stranger Things when the teacher is using the analogy where he's talking about the tightrope walker on the tightrope and how there's a flea underneath it? That analogy originally comes from Green's book, which is called The Fabric of the Cosmos. So th- this guy... They, they basically researched him to figure out how to write the stuff about the upside down. 
on the TV show. And in fact, Green himself says, whoever is writing this show is well-versed in some of the popular descriptions of these ideas. Whether it's mine or not, it doesn't really matter. Oh, yeah. that doesn't really matter. <laughs> and then he added, also, if there's a monster, its head should open like a flower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just, my two, just also, my two cents as a scientist. That's his other book. Yeah. If you've never seen a picture of the physicist Brian Greene, he's a favorite virus on the show. He comes up a lot. You should look him up because I think he looks a lot like David Duchovny. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. He kind of does. So, total tangent. Sorry. Please continue. <laughs> so... All right, so let's stick with the three major theories, though. And, and Green outlines these, but some other people do as well. So the very first academic proposal of parallel universes came in 1954 by this guy named Hugh Everett III. Oh, Hugh. And Hugh came up with what we now call many worlds theory. And he did this while he was a doctoral student. So he hadn't even graduated yet. And he's like, hey, this is my dissertation. There's parallel universes. And just, like, drops a big book on the table. <laughs> and... He says, look, they're, they're related to ours, they're all branching off, others branch off of them, yada yada. So to better understand this though, I'm sorry everybody, we're gonna have to talk about some quantum physics for a little bit. It's gonna, it's a little painful, but I'm gonna try to boil it down and make it as easy for all of us as possible, cause it does hurt my head a little bit. Oh come on, positive <laughs> well, thinking, it's not painful, it's no, quantum well, physics. Everybody it... think positively in my psychic powers related to quantum <laughs> physics Wait, work. I, I do, but there is a famous quote about quantum physics where if it, if it does not make your head hurt a little bit, you're, you, you're well, not engaging with it properly, right? Is it uh, Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, who said that if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand uh-huh, quantum yes, physics? That's what I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm afraid I'm misquoting. I don't think so. Okay. So Everett was inspired by two scientists that were quantum physicists. And they were Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr. And Heisenberg suggested that if you just observe quantum matter, that we're affecting its behavior, just looking at it. And he said, subsequently, we can never be sure of what its attributes are. Uh, this is called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So here, here's an example. Eh. Here's an example I cribbed from our colleague Josh Clark uh, from Stuff You Should Know. He has this great analogy, and he says, imagine you're looking at Joe, specifically Joe, uh, and Joe is a human being who's solid, okay? Now, everybody look solid. away from Joe, and then when you look back, all of a sudden, Joe is made out of gas. That, I hope it's radon gas. <laughs> <laughs> so that is essentially the idea behind the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that like the, the attributes of the physical form change every time you stop looking at it and look at it again, right? And it's suggesting essentially that, and this is where Bohr comes in, he's this Danish, Danish physicist, and he says, well, actually, it doesn't exist in one state or the other. It exists in all states simultaneously, uh, but like Heisenberg, he says it's it's got to stay in one form as long as we're looking at it. So this is you probably heard of this as the Copenhagen interpretation. This is the idea that you know a quantum event is both A and B at the same time until it interacts with something that forces it to collapse into one or the other. So Everett comes along. He's working on his dissertation, and he argues, "Okay, I, I agree with Bohr on everything except for one respect." He says, "Measuring uh, and observing quantum." objects don't actually force it into a comprehensible state. What it does is it splits it into an entire other universe. And he says this literally duplicates the universe every time you observe quantum matter and then that subsequently splits every other time any action is taken or not taken related to it. So this is like the infamous stuff that you see in, in you know, pop science, po- uh, popular fiction, where there's a, there's an alternate universe where I'm a bank robber and not a podcast host, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Because I just 
didn't decide to rob that bank. (laughs) And under many worlds, there probably would be such a universe because there's an infinite number of quantum events to split the universe an infinite number of times. It's it's like the Library of Babel. It's the idea that it's a library that contains not only all books, but all possible books. Right. 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 So this is uh, usually called daughter universe theory. Okay. Now let's put it in Stranger Things terms. So let's say 11 is our quantum object. When you look at her once, she appears to be a little girl. Uh, you turn away, you look again, maybe she looks like the Demogorgon. That's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Then Niels Bohr was suggesting that a quantum 11 is both the little girl and the Demogorgon at the same time and all other, bur- other possible forms. Like there's one where she's played by Carrie Fisher and she's, she's that form simultaneously with, you know, infinite other ones. And then, Everett comes along and he says, but wait, every time 11 is measured or looked at, say by Matthew Modine, then it causes a split in the universe and this creates a daughter universe. And so subsequently, there's just all these parallel universes that are based on the observation of the quantum 11. Now, as crazy as this sounds, a lot of physicists actually do hold to the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. It's something that's popular. I know uh, recently on the show we talked about the Caltech physicist uh, Sean Carroll. I know he favors the many worlds interpretation. So it is taken seriously by real physicists. And it's a good way of thinking that there's a lot of other universes out there. But could you get between them? Yeah, but yeah, how does this, how does this, how do we get from here to Demogorgon? Yeah, Many Worlds doesn't really get into that as far as I could tell, but that's one possible explanation, I guess, for what the upside down is, right? Another possibility is string theory. We've all probably heard this thrown around. It's related to Albert Einstein's theory of everything. It proposes that there's an even smaller level than quantum, uh, the quantum level. There's the sub-quantum level. This is like in Ant-Man where he shrinks down like so small that it just turns into this psychedelic nightmare. So small that the CGI budget for the entire film just implodes <laughs> upon itself. Yeah, yeah. Approaches infinity. <laughs> so the argument here is that uh, all the essential building blocks of all matter and all physical forces exist on the subquantum level and here there are these things that are referred to as rubber bands basically that are strings and they make up quantum particles and then that makes up everything else like everything in this room every every force of nature is all made up of these strings well it is a theory of everything exactly that is exactly what it is. It is entirely theoretical. So there's no, I should be clear about this. There is no evidence that this is true. Some scientists feel like this discredits it entirely. Uh, but it's worth bringing that up because string theory also ends up leading us into a theory of parallel universes. So this theory says, okay, they, parallel universes exists like bubbles next to each other. And when they come in contact with one another, it's because gravity flows in and out of these bubbles, back and forth to each other. But every time these universes interact, a big bang occurs, just like the one that created our universe. So every time they touch, it creates another universe. But what we don't know is what happens when these, you know, to, to these actual bubbles themselves. Like, do, the, do they explode? Is it really bad? Or is it totally benign? Well, it... it this is it's worth keeping in mind like when it creates another universe it's not it's not like a uh, a, a total fantasy universe where it's like oh here's a universe where everyone is a nazi here's a universe right. where everyone has a um, you know a, a sheep's head or something yeah that uh, sounds like a great universe th- this is more like here is a a, a new big bang and a new con- uh, contained universe and who knows what it 
it results in. It's very much like the the Library of Babel, where many of the books, I mean, I guess the the majority of the books in the the Library of Babel are illegible, right? Uh, almost every single yeah. one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's only the a, vanishing a minority that makes sense. Yeah. So Brian Green, remember him? He actually argues that the recent discovery of gravitational waves make this slightly testable. So it it, it might actually have some evidence in the next couple of years. Uh, it, it, you, you might have noticed this this week. The scientists who discovered gravitational waves won the Nobel Prize. So that's probably why it's a big deal. I mean, there's lots of reasons why it's a big deal, but, <laughs> but that's one of them. Maybe we'll find parallel universes. Uh, so they're hoping that they can test string theory with that. And then the idea here is essentially that as the universe expands, each one of these strings is getting stretched out. And as they're stretching, it produces a crack. And it's not an audible crack. It's a crack that exists through gravitational waves. So the researchers are hoping that now that they've discovered gravitational waves, they can test them and subsequently maybe find strings and or sub-quantum reality. That's fascinating. I mean, we've talked about string theory on the show before and never uh, never come across a good way to test it today. It's always sort of one of those things where they say maybe on the very on the next high-energy particle collider we'll get to high enough energies that we can test yeah. it. Yeah. But so, uh, I hadn't heard of this. So in terms of Stranger Things, okay, if we're using string theory here, maybe uh, the upside down is one of these bubbles, mm-hmm. and then the Stranger Things, like real world, is another bubble, and they touched, and then that means that while they could pass back and forth between one another, they would have created another Bang ba- Big Bang. So we might see a third universe. Okay. That's a possibility. And the, and this, and the upside down is just a universe that happened to turn out just like ours, except a little icky looking. Sure. Okay. <laughs> now the well, final moldy. theory is called eternal inflation. I love that name. And it argues that if you could zoom back and look at all of space time simultaneously, you'd find that some areas of space stop inflating the way that the Big Bang did and that others continue at like a rapid pace. So some some parts are inflating, some aren't. They're all at different rates. And guess what? They use the bubble metaphor too. They couldn't come up with their own thing. So they've got this bubble metaphor. Our universe is a bubble. It's in a network of other bubbles. But the big difference here is that the universes in these potentially have different laws of physics than ours do. So this is a combination idea of parallel universes with alternate dimensions, which makes it a little more complicated. Uh, but it's essentially asking, like, what's going to happen if these bubbles collide, right? Now, astrophysicist Ethan Siegel came along in 2015, and he added a limitation or maybe a complexity to this theory that I think makes it more fun. He says, well, here's the thing. Space-time could go on forever in theory, but our universe, we know our universe is measurable and that it's under 14 billion years old. So it's not infinite. Therefore, it subsequently has to have a limit to the number of ways that particles can arrange themselves in the universe. So again, this is all these different possibilities that lead to physics, but not an infinite amount of them. Okay. There's another theory, though, that's kind of buried inside of eternal inflation theory, and it's called Brains Universe Theory. And Brains is spelled B-A... B-A. Barnes? B-R-A-N-E-S. This is what you were referring to when I read the Lily quote where he's talking about membranes. Membranes, exactly. Yeah. So he's using language that's, you know, steeped in this stuff. It imagines this, though, that these universes are all intersecting and overlapping, but instead of using the bubble metaphor, they they say, in brain theory, they say, well, it's like bread. 
It's like a bunch of slices of bread, and they're all stacked on top of each other. Uh, and they call these brains. And each one of these brains has three dimensions. But if you refine the idea, and maybe there's some more complex versions of these brains, some have three dimensions, maybe some of them have 17 dimensions, and when they overlap, what we would experience is in three dimensions, because we, our, our bodies are physically only able to perceive that many dimensions, plus time. So maybe what's going on in Stranger Things is actually these two universes have overlapped, and what they're experiencing in the upside down is sort of like the, the the middle of like a Venn diagram, right? That well, that would I like this theory because this would explain why there is a swimming pool, why they see like a, just a shadow version yeah. of their own world. Yeah, it's just like slightly different because they're not able to perceive all of these other dimensions of reality that are occurring around them. So here's where it gets exciting because this theory has a lot of evidence that seems to make it look like it's possible. Uh, in 2005, a paper was published in Physical Review Letters that said, oh, we just found this big cold spot in space, and we detected it with NASA's WMAP satellite. Then in 2008, two more studies were conducted to try to detect this as well. And they did this by looking at cosmic microwaves. And the reason why is because cosmic microwaves are left over from the Big Bang and have cooled down to about 2.7 kelvins. This is like a thing that we know. We can kind of measure it. Sometimes throughout the universe it's a little hotter. Sometimes they're a little cooler. And that corresponds to fluctuations in the density of the early universe as it was growing after the Big Bang and clumping, like thing mass was clumping together and forming ga- galaxies. Okay? So they thought... Maybe this cold spot that we've just found, this could be where another universe has overlapped with ours while ours was inflating during the Big Bang. Hmm. Then in 2013, the cold spot was detected again by the European Space Agency's Planck mission. And then more recently, it was detected yet again by the Very Large Array Radio Telescope. And they found that the cold spot, and get ready for this, it's this giant void that is one billion light years across. It is huge. It is largely empty of of everything we understand to be in space. There's no galaxies. There's no dark matter as far as they can tell. So maybe this is evidence of a bubble collision or, I guess, a bread collision. (laughs) These these universes have, have come together... And that's the Venn diagram. Oh, man, do you think they could call it the bread zone? That would be, <laughs> that would be great, be yeah. <laughs> so, okay, here's the Stranger Things like a, a, attempt at explaining this. So maybe the Stranger Things universe and the Upside Down, they're part of all of space and time that's around us, right? But they inflated at different rates. And you can either think of them as bubbles or bread, whatever works for you. Subsequently, the Upside Down could have different laws of physics than we do. However, based on what we see in the show, the laws of physics would have to be fairly aligned with ours. I yeah, mean, of course, not, yeah. Not just because we don't see people defying the laws of physics, but like the universe of the Upside Down is held together but uh, that's in the same way as ours is. we, or Winona Ryder and Hellboy, can only experience the Upside Down that's true, through yeah. three dimensions and then the fourth dimension of time. So maybe what we've seen in this show, the idea of the Upside Down, is actually not another universe, but it's where two universes are overlapping. Huh. Well, that that opens up all sorts of storytelling possibilities for future seasons. Totally. If when you're in the Upside Down, you can defy the your expectations of physics uh, if you just you know believe in yourself. So yeah. 
Positive vibes, man. Hypothetical question. If there could be other universes with different laws of physics than our own, maybe, maybe not. And if we could go to them, uh, that seems very unlikely, but let's just say we did. You went to another universe that had different laws of physics. Would that universe immediately kill you? Yeah, because if, if I depend on, and I do depend on the laws of the physics uh, of this universe to hold my body together. Right. I mean, how am I going to go into a universe that has a, maybe a drastically different uh, structure? Yeah, like say you go to a universe with your body made of atoms and suddenly one of the four fundamental forces, the nuclear force, is weaker. And so the atoms in your body are just not quite as keen to hold together. Yeah. That seems like maybe that wouldn't be great. Yeah, <laughs> but this is so again this points to the idea that they're overlapping so that you've still mm-hmm. got the forces of our universe overlapping with all of their forces. But hey, it's a television show. That sounds maybe like that, a mess. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh maybe that's another episode though. Yeah. All right, guys. There you have it. We have we've rolled through some science, uh so a little culture, a little history, some pseudoscience. All, all of which seems to flow out of Stranger Things, and uh, so then hopefully this uh, helps enrich your appreciation of a show you already dig, and maybe prepares you for some of the twists and turns in the upcoming season, which uh, airs at the end of this month. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Y'all yeah. been a lot of fun. And uh, once more, everything on the table has to go. So. Don't don't be shy about grabbing some t-shirts and some buttons. Thanks everybody. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.